1968, Robert F. Kennedy was traveling across the United States, campaigning for the presidency. He vowed if he was elected to office, he'd end the Vietnam War and curb poverty. But psychic Kathleen Middleton feared the politician wouldn't get the chance to make good on his promises. On March 11th, she told the Premonitions Bureau she kept visualizing the word assassination next to Kennedy. All through the spring, she maintained that his life was in danger. Then, on June 4th, that sense of doom became so overwhelming, Kathleen called the Bureau three times. That night, Kennedy attended a party at Los Angeles' Ambassador Hotel. He was celebrating his victory in the California primary, which put him one step closer to the presidency. Just after midnight, Kennedy left the venue through the hotel's kitchen. On his way out, he was fatally shot in the head. Unfortunately, Kathleen was right. Yet again, she and the Premonitions Bureau had predicted a tragedy. And this wouldn't be the last time they'd foresee a death. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the Premonitions Bureau. The 1960s experiment tracked psychic visions in the hopes of predicting and preventing tragedies. Last time, we met psychiatrist Dr. John Barker and his partner, journalist Peter Fairley, as they collected intuitions and tested their accuracy. Two of their subjects, Kathleen Middleton and Alan Hensher, successfully anticipated major international catastrophes like a large plane crash and the first space race casualty. Today, we'll continue to track Kathleen and Alan's ominous dreams and see how their work made the Premonitions Bureau a national sensation. Then we'll discuss their most shocking prediction of all, Dr. Barker's death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. 
That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Nineteen sixty-seven was poised to be a big year for psychiatrist John Barker. He teamed up with journalist Peter Fairley to start the Premonitions Bureau, an organization that collected possible psychic visions and tried to predict disasters in advance. If everything went well, the men planned to share their findings at Parliament. With the government's help, they hoped to set up a national early warning system notifying people before tragedy struck. Although the Bureau was sponsored by the Evening Standard, competing publications reported on the project. Like Dr. Barker, they were captivated by two subjects in particular, teacher Kathleen Middleton and post office worker Alan Hensher. The latter had already correctly predicted a major plane crash. In the fall of 1967, Alan had another eerie premonition. On October 11th, he warned the Bureau about an impending train wreck. He saw two carriages stacked on top of each other and many casualties. A few weeks later, Kathleen submitted a similar prophecy, except hers was even more specific. On November 1st, she was sitting in her kitchen when the word train popped into her head, followed by a streak of light and a gray-colored mist. For some reason, she also felt the name Charing Cross would be important. Four days after Kathleen's vision, an evening express train departed from Hastings on the southern coast of England, headed toward London. The weather wasn't great, but this didn't stop the train from continuing down its route. Everything was running according to plan when it stopped and changed drivers. That's when Donald Purvis took the reins. As he crossed into southeast London's Grove Park, Donald pressed down on the air brake. For some reason, the train didn't slow down. It derailed. A later investigation found one of the carriages had hit a small break in the tracks. Passenger Robin Gibb, a member of the musical trio The Bee Gees, knew something was wrong right away. He and his fiancée Molly sat in first-class seats, but the expensive furnishings were no consolation when Robin heard what sounded like rocks hitting the side of the train. He rushed to pull an emergency cord, but before he could reach it, the lights went out. A guard shouted for Robin and his fellow passengers to get on the floor. Outside, a local signalman saw sparks erupt under the train. Even then, the derailed carriages only picked up speed, eventually reaching 90 miles per hour. They managed to stay upright for over 400 yards until slamming into a junction. Four of the carriages tipped onto their sides. According to the Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight, people were flung from one side of the train to the other, like ragdolls. Windows shattered and ceilings caved in. 
A piece of the track smashed through one of the panels, showering Robin and Molly with glass. The shards would stay in Robin's hair for days. Even worse, the loose rail segment grazed Robin's face. If he'd leaned even an inch forward, he believed it would have killed him. He and Molly managed to climb out through an open window. They were mostly unscathed, save for some oil stains. As they looked around the crash site, they saw newspapers and luggage scattered about. The couple was taken to a local hospital. As they waited to be seen, other victims were wheeled in on stretchers. Gibb later compared the scene to a war zone. In total, 49 people were killed and 78 injured. The crash happened just eight miles from Charing Cross Station, a key detail from Kathleen Middleton's premonition. Around the time of the crash, Dr. Barker's other star clairvoyant, Alan Hensher, sensed something was wrong. He was working at the post office when his head started throbbing. At about 10.15 p.m., he told a colleague he thought a train wreck had taken place within the last hour. It had. The train bound for London derailed at exactly 9.16 p.m. Because Alan was on a shift, he likely didn't have access to the news. He just had a gut feeling. Before long, Alan and Kathleen's predictions made headlines around the country. The Evening News even published a front-page article, The Strange Case of the Two Who Knew. And everyone was clamoring to talk to the man who gave the famous psychics a platform. The BBC interviewed Dr. Barker. He bragged about how accurate Kathleen and Alan's visions were, until they reported an ominous intuition about him. On February 7, 1968, Kathleen pictured a ghost-like version of Dr. Barker. She said the figure had thinner hair, his sideburns were gray and unkempt, and his eyes were pale brown. Kathleen's parents were standing next to him, even though they'd been dead for five years. The dream stayed with her for a week. As the days wore on, she became convinced her parents were sending her a message. Dr. Barker's life was in danger. There didn't seem to be any obvious reason why the psychiatrist would be at risk, but still, a report like this had to be unnerving. Especially because this was the second time Dr. Barker's research subjects predicted he would die. The year before, Alan had called Dr. Barker at 1 a.m. one night to ask if he had a dark-colored car. The doctor said he did. Alan didn't offer any additional information, but he was firm. Dr. Barker should be careful. His life depended on it. In the wake of Alan's ominous warning, Dr. Barker dictated a four-page memo about how frightened he was. The psychiatrist had been so concerned about using the Premonitions Bureau to help others, he hadn't considered what he'd do if they predicted his own demise. Yet months passed without any issues. It seemed Dr. Barker was in the clear, until Kathleen shared her latest vision with him. Now, Dr. Barker started to wonder if maybe he should be worried. Eventually, all his anxiety culminated in a nervous breakdown. 
Dr. Barker couldn't even get life insurance, in part because he had such high blood pressure. This wasn't necessarily a new development. Throughout his career, Dr. Barker had been so devoted to his patients, he'd often struggled to take care of himself. At one point, he barely had time for breakfast, scarfing down some fried food before heading off to work each day. He put in long hours and relieved his stress by smoking a pipe. Fortunately, in the years leading up to the Premonitions Bureau, he'd started prioritizing his health. He stopped smoking, picked up surfing, and spent more time with his family. But the physician's improved lifestyle wasn't enough to change his fate. Alan had another eerie dream about Dr. Barker. He pictured the psychiatrist passing away at home. Neither he nor Kathleen predicted the timing of Dr. Barker's demise. So for the foreseeable future, all the doctor could do was stay on high alert. But living in fear came with its own set of issues. Coming up, Dr. Barker tries to dodge the Grim Reaper. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history, because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free, only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. After two of Dr. John Barker's research subjects predicted his demise, he felt like a dead man walking. But beyond some ominous but vague images, Kathleen Middleton and Alan Hencher couldn't tell him much. So Dr. Barker approached each day with caution, but he couldn't control every potential danger he encountered. A few weeks after Kathleen and Alan shared their visions, a woman known as Patient 18 was being treated at Shelton Hospital where Dr. Barker worked. She was assigned to a wing known as Beach Ward, where she lived with about 40 other women. So far as medical facilities went, Shelton was pretty nice. In the Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight, Beach Ward is described as having a day room with plush chairs, a TV, and coal fireplaces. There were three entry and exit points, which only the nurses had access to. Throughout the day, five or six nurses worked on site, but at night, there were usually just one or two. On the evening of February 25, 1968, two were on duty. Some of the patients had just finished watching TV and were getting ready for bed. On their way out of the day room, one of them pinched the end of her cigarette and threw the stub toward the fireplace. About an hour later, patient 18 woke up to a burning smell. 
She hopped out of her bed, which was at the south end of the ward, to see where it was coming from. That's when she saw smoke in the corridor. She rushed to tell the night nurses who were taking a tea break. They hadn't seen any smoke, so they told patient 18 to go back to bed. But her warning stuck in the back of their minds. Just to be safe, the nurses decided to look for themselves, and they found patient 18 was right. The hospital was on fire. The staff had never been trained on fire safety. No drills, nothing. They didn't know how the fire alarm functioned or if it even worked at all. The nurses dealt with the situation the best they could. Most of the phones at Shelton had an emergency button, but it was finicky. If someone pressed the button and lifted the receiver at the same time, the phone would stop working. This happened to at least three people that night. Meanwhile, the flames grew larger. Finally, at least eight minutes after the fire started, a nurse smashed the glass on a fire alarm. A small metal button popped out, so she tapped it. What she didn't realize was that button turned the alarm off. Luckily, by this point, the night porter had heard about the blaze, but he couldn't just go ahead and call the fire department. Per hospital protocol, he had to contact Shelton's deputy fire officer first, and that person was asleep. As the nurses waited for help, they tried to save as many patients as possible. Unfortunately, the more time passed, the more stifling the smoke became. After what felt like forever, the fire brigade arrived on the scene. Over a hundred people were evacuated as first responders battled the flames. By 2 a.m., the blaze was under control. When the dust settled, 24 patients had been killed. It was the deadliest British hospital fire in over half a century. Newspapers published devastating photos of firefighters standing beside charred, mangled beds. The walls in the southern wing looked like a marshmallow roasted over a campfire. A few weeks later, one of the nurses found a silhouette burned into the hospital's bathroom tiles. It showed several people huddled together. Although Dr. Barker wasn't at Shelton when it went up in flames, he bore the brunt of the fallout. The editorial board of his local paper, the Shropshire Star, wrote a scathing piece about the hospital's safety protocols, or lack thereof. But the most biting criticism came from The Private Eye, a British satirical magazine. They wrote Dr. Barker had created an entire experiment that revolved around recording psychic visions and still failed to anticipate the Shelton tragedy. If he couldn't save his hospital, how did he hope to save others? It was true. The disaster prompted Dr. Barker to reevaluate the Premonitions Bureau. By the spring of 1968, it had been in place for 15 months and collected hundreds of reports of intuitions, but only 3% had come true. Although the overall accuracy rate was low, Kathleen and Alan had scored better than most subjects. Between the two of them, they'd anticipated plane crashes, a train wreck, and a cosmic catastrophe. More importantly, the British public was interested in what they had to say. So the Evening Standard, which sponsored the Premonitions Bureau, 
took the opportunity to usher in some positive publicity and profile Kathleen and Alan. It didn't exactly go as planned. Shortly after the interview, Kathleen and Alan demanded the Bureau return the letters they'd written outlining their visions. The psychics were going rogue. They wanted to publish a book. Alan, in particular, was eager to put the Bureau behind him. He explained, ever since he got involved with the experiment, his mental health had taken a turn for the worse. He told Fairley how agonizing it was to experience unsettling foresight, especially when it struck during his night shift at the post office. It was so bad, he had trouble sleeping once he got home from work. As if that wasn't upsetting enough, Alan often woke up to find his predictions splashed across the front page of the local paper. This only amplified his anxiety. So now, Alan wanted to record his findings and move on with his life. In fact, he was starting to suspect the only ones benefiting from the experiment were Fairley and the Evening Standard. Both had gotten more exposure since the Bureau started up. Kathleen echoed Alan's concerns about feeling used. Neither of them were being compensated for their premonitions when the fact was they were helping the Evening Standard sell more papers. But Fairley cautioned Alan and Kathleen not to get carried away with the psychic powers they, quote, may not in fact possess, end quote. Although they'd predicted some important events, their visions weren't specific enough to actually save anyone. Based on this statement, it's possible Fairley thought Alan and Kathleen were frauds. Why bother with them when he could cover new, more exciting stories? So he went to Dr. Barker and suggested the Bureau sever ties with the supposed clairvoyance. But Dr. Barker enjoyed hearing from Alan and Kathleen. He pushed to keep the experiment going for the remainder of 1968. And somehow, he persuaded Kathleen and Alan to continue working with him. Perhaps the affection he felt for them was mutual. In March 1968, Kathleen shared a newsworthy premonition with Dr. Barker. She had a sinking feeling American politician Robert F. Kennedy was going to be killed. Her anxiety grew in the following months. By June 4th, it was so bad, she called the Bureau three times. She felt like this was it. Kennedy was in imminent danger. Sure enough, shortly after the clock ticked past midnight, Kennedy was fatally shot at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Of course, Kathleen wasn't the only one who'd been worried about Kennedy's safety. Death threats routinely poured into the candidate's office. Every week, the FBI passed along photos of potential shooters who might attend campaign rallies. Although he traveled with a bodyguard, Kennedy once said, living every day is like Russian roulette. I am pretty sure there will be an attempt on my life sooner or later. Even so, Kathleen's prediction was a major breakthrough for the Premonitions Bureau. Up to that point, her ominous dreams had often been vague about the timeline which left room for doubt. For example, I could make a prediction, a commercial plane will crash in the next year. But even if that statement comes true, it doesn't make me a psychic. Statistically speaking, there's a good chance of at least one crash happening per year. 
But if people could identify the exact day a tragedy is set to occur, like Kathleen did with Kennedy, then Dr. Barker could still accomplish his goal. He could still use the Bureau to prevent disaster, if he lived long enough to see it through. Coming up, Dr. Barker confronts a deadly prophecy. Now, back to the story. In 1968, Dr. John Barker and science journalist Peter Fairley agreed to continue the Premonitions Bureau for a little longer. But the fate of the experiment would depend on more accurate visions and the health of Dr. Barker. A few weeks after Kathleen Middleton predicted Robert Kennedy's death, Dr. Barker started having intense headaches. Eventually, they became so painful, he was admitted to a local hospital where he continued to toil from bed. Before long, he fell back into his old habits of overworking himself. It seemed the Bureau had gone from a passion project to an obsession. Now it looked like he was experiencing burnout. While Dr. Barker was at the hospital, Kathleen had another ominous dream. She saw herself having tea with her late parents. They looked happy until Kathleen's mother suddenly got up and pushed Kathleen away, then got into a black car and sped off. Kathleen tried to run after her, but the car was too fast. She woke up in a trance-like state and sent a memo to the Premonitions Bureau that read, quote, this may mean a death, end quote. To Kathleen, the message was clear. She was about to lose someone close to her, presumably Dr. Barker. The last time she'd had a vision about her parents, they were standing beside the doctor's ghost. Since then, his health had deteriorated. Now that he was in the hospital, Kathleen was convinced he was living out his final days. Still, there didn't seem to be anything physically wrong with him. The physicians couldn't figure out what was causing his headaches. So by mid-August, he was deemed well enough to leave. Dr. Barker carried on with business as usual. He toured the wards at Shelton Hospital, logged submissions at the Evening Standard, and made a home visit to a patient. That same weekend, his family was getting ready to move. Just before they were supposed to leave the old place for the last time, they heard Dr. Barker's heavy breathing coming from the upstairs bedroom. His wife found Dr. Barker struggling on the bedroom floor. One of his brain vessels had burst. The day before, Kathleen woke up choking. She cried out for help. It was similar to the way she'd felt in the moments before the Abervan disaster like the walls were closing in around her. Hours later, Dr. Barker died at the age of 44. His death and Kathleen's thoughts about it were on the front page of the Psychic News. In the end, Dr. Barker's experiment predicted his own death. For believers in the supernatural, his passing was proof that psychics ought to be taken seriously. But people questioned what good their visions were if the bad ones still came true. And with just a 3% accuracy rate, the program struck some people as a fool's errand. Dr. Barker's partner, Peter Fairley, moved on. 
the journalist grew fascinated with the space race and broadcast his coverage of NASA missions. In the process, he made a name for himself as a reporter. At the same time, the Bureau's top two psychics stopped writing in. Alan Henscher cut off all communication, and Kathleen started sending her predictions to a different organization called the Central Premonitions Registry. Dr. Barker's secretary at the Evening Standard, Jennifer Preston, did all she could to keep the Bureau running. But she said nobody wanted to act on the precognitions. Ultimately, they never sent out any early warnings. By the time the experiment shuttered in the mid-70s, Preston had collected thousands of predictions and checked about 1,200 of them. But just because Dr. Barker's experiment didn't pan out doesn't mean we should ignore premonitions wholesale. In 2020, NPR reported on a Scottish woman, Joy Milne, with a seemingly supernatural feature, her nose. Joy first became aware of her ability when she met her husband, Les Milne, in high school. She remembered him having a, quote, lovely male musk scent. After college, they got married and raised three sons together. The first 10 years were smooth sailing until Joy noticed a sudden change in Les. The musky perfume she'd loved had transformed into a, quote, nasty yeast smell. Initially, Joy thought he was just skipping showers, but no matter how much he bathed, the odor lingered. It became a point of contention. She'd suggest Les take a shower, he'd get upset and say no one else could detect whatever was bothering her. At some point, he asked Joy to stop complaining about it, so she kept her comments to herself. However, in the following years, Les's stench wasn't all that bothered her. By the time he hit his early 40s, Les became more irritable than usual. The couple went from occasional disagreements to frequent fights. And before she knew it, the kind-hearted man Joy had fallen in love with was gone. The situation became dire when Joy woke up one night to find Les attacking her. He was having a nightmare and didn't realize he was screaming and shaking his wife. Funky odors were one thing, but this was serious. Joy worried he might have a brain tumor. Les consulted his doctor and waited anxiously for his test results. It turned out he had Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is a nervous disorder that causes physical symptoms like tremors and impacts mood, sometimes causing depression and anxiety. So Les's change in behavior was actually a symptom of the disease. The next two decades were a challenge for him and Joy. His condition made it impossible for him to work, and his mobility became increasingly restricted. Then, around 2013, they went to a support group for Parkinson's patients. By the time they arrived, the room was already packed. As soon as she walked in, Joy was overcome by the same scent she'd detected on her husband. Some patients reeked more than others, which got her thinking. Maybe Parkinson's has a particular aroma. And if she could detect it before symptoms set in, people could receive early treatment. She and Les contacted a Parkinson's researcher at the University of Edinburgh, Tilo Kunath. The couple wanted to know if it was possible to have premonitions about Parkinson's. 
Kunath was skeptical. He didn't see any reason why a brain disorder would give off a scent. But a few months later, he read an article about how dogs could smell cancer. He wondered if Les and Joy were onto something. He invited the couple back to his lab to take part in an experiment. Kunath assembled two groups, Parkinson's patients and people without the disease. He asked both parties to wear white t-shirts overnight and return them to the lab the next day. Each garment was assigned a random number and put in a box. Then, Kunath asked Joy to smell each one. Based on the scent, she would say whether the person who wore the shirt had early, mid, or late-stage Parkinson's or didn't have the disease at all. Her responses were overwhelmingly accurate. She just made one error. She said one of the shirts was worn by someone with Parkinson's when it came from someone who hadn't been diagnosed with the condition. Still, her results were impressive. A few months later, Kunath was even more surprised when he ran into the man Joy had misidentified. He told Kunath to move his shirt into the disease pile. He just found out he had Parkinson's. That meant Joy had detected the condition with 100% accuracy, and in one case, before doctors had. After Kunath's demonstration, a team of researchers identified 10 compounds linked to Parkinson's. These elements might explain why Joy seemed to smell the disease. Now, Joy Milne wasn't a psychic. Her super-sniffing abilities don't appear to be supernatural. But until she demonstrated her powers for doctors, presumably no one realized it was possible to smell Parkinson's. And maybe something similar can explain psychic visions. They may have some grounded scientific explanation we just haven't figured out yet. Unfortunately, with the Premonitions Bureau shuttered, we're not getting much closer to figuring out what that explanation could be. Even though Dr. Barker's experiment ended decades ago, his mission lives on. He may have been ridiculed by his colleagues for embracing the supernatural, but maybe he wasn't so far off. Who knows? Years from now, you may have a physical exam administered by a psychic. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the Premonitions Bureau, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Premonitions Bureau by Sam Knight extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Ben Hanani, edited by Natalie Pritsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, 
Fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Josephine Cahew, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Anthony Valsic. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.